So we're going through the book of Ephesians. If this is your first time with us, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 3. And this is, the reason we're doing this is, as I said, we're building up for uh, our official grand opening, which is going to be this September. And so the book of Ephesians is broken down in these two sections, all right? The first three chapters talk about our position in Christ, that is, who we are and what God has done since eternity past to provide salvation to those who believe, all right? Then the second half of the book talks about, okay, the practical implications as a result of that, how we're supposed to live in response to the gospel. But here's what most of us do. Most of us try to live holy lives or faithful lives in order to get God's love. But Paul is saying, no, it doesn't work that way. God has in his infallible in, uh, uh, and, and unsearchable and, and, and deep and wide love, he has already loved us, those who believe, and has given us a position that we can never attain and now in response to that, here's how we can live. So because of what God has done, this is how we can live. Here's our position in Christ, and now here's how we live that out. So we're walking slowly but steadily through this passage, through this letter that Paul writes to this church in Ephesus. And so today we're going to be in chapter 3. Now before we zoom into chapter 3, I do want to give a quick background of where we've been because there's a lot of new faces. And for those of us who have been here every week, we need to be reminded. And so we started up here in chapter 1 verse 3 through 6 where basically the takeaway from that is if, if forethought equals love and affection, then we are drowning in the love and affection of God. Because the Bible tells us right there in those verses that before the foundation of the world were settled, our salvation was settled in God. So before God put the earth together, he already had a plan for your salvation. So if forethought equals love and affection, then we are drowning in the love and the affection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Then in verses 7 through 10, we talked about how my sin is as removed as God is rich. So however rich God is in his love and in his grace and in his mercy, however rich he is in that, that's how removed my sin is. Because the Bible says in those passages that our sin is forgiven according to the riches of God's grace. So however rich God is in his grace, that's how removed our sin is for those who believe. So it's God. There's nothing richer than God. Our sin is God for those who believe. Then the next week when we were at the park, if you guys remember freezing at the park that morning, we were in verses 11 through 14 that taught us that my future, for those who believe, our future is as for sure as the Spirit of God has us sealed. Okay, the Bible says that we are sealed with the Spirit of God here in this passage. And so whatever my future is, my future relationship with God, my future hope, my future inheritance, it's however strong the Spirit sealing of the Holy Spirit is. So if the Spirit is strong, if the seal is authoritative, if the seal is final, then my future is as for sure as that is because we who believe are sealed with the Spirit of God, a deposit of the inheritance to come. Then Paul wraps up chapter 1 in verses 15 through 23, and that was Mother's Day, if you remember, with this prayer. He was praying that we would be enlightened to the empowerment of God, that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that's working in us. So 
our, uh, our prayer for each other is not to have more peace or more joy or more of Jesus. Our prayer is to open our eyes to the reality of the possessions that we already have through Christ. We're not going to get more of Jesus. We got it all. It's a realization of what we have. So praying for an enlightenment to the empowerment. And then when we turn the page over into chapter 2, Paul talks about, he makes it very personal. He talks about how we were dead in our transgressions, but we've been made alive in Christ. And, and the takeaway from that morning was, you know, doing good things, I mean, it's good. It's good to do good stuff. But only Jesus can make us good. Only Jesus can make us good. And that's the requirement to get into God's heaven, is to be just as good as God. And that's Jesus who does that. Nothing else. Doing good for others, that's good. But only Jesus can make us good. And then we wrapped up the verse last week, or the chapter last week, when we were talking about how, and we're going to get into a little bit this morning, of how in Christ all barriers are busted. Remember that from last week? All barriers are busted. There is no more Jewish Christian, Gentile Christian. There's just Christian. The barriers are gone. Jesus, when he came, he destroyed the barriers between uh, the, the, the people who believe in Jesus. They're gone. And so as a result, there's this new thing being built, which is what we call the church. Brick by brick, a new structure that's being built for the glory of God. And then today we get into... Chapter 3. So for those who weren't with us for the first couple part, there's kind of a quick summary. All of those messages are on our podcast. If you want, you can go to our website and catch up if you want. So today, the takeaway, and I'm just going to go ahead and give it to you. Um, but it's going to be on the screen later on if you want to write it down later on. But the takeaway today is that, I'm going to read it directly. To be effective... Effective in anything, but particularly effective in the kingdom of God. To be effective, an effective believer, but also effective husband, an effective mother. But to be effective, you must be selective in your perspective. There's a lot of ifs in there. We'll, we'll, but to be effective, we must be selective in our perspective. When April and I were, I don't know, just two, three or four years ago, we were... Uh, ministering at a church a couple, year, a couple mile, uh, hours away, and things were going really, really well. Um, God was doing some good stuff. I was in charge of the youth ministry, and in a couple of short years, the youth ministry had just exploded, and, and there was just some really good things happening. We were very safe. We were very happy. We were very comfortable. As a matter of fact, the pastor even talked about how, Walt, just stick around. I'm going to retire, and man, this thing could be yours, the whole thing. And as a 20 at the time, 25, 26-year-old, it's like, all right, I'm in. We built a house in 2007 in that community on that side of the town because we're like, man, we got our future like figured out. Our plans are settled. We're going to be right here. And then in 2008, we started a journey um, that at the time was one of the most painful journeys ever, and it's still painful to think about. But we went through three years. For those who don't know our story, we went, we went through three years of three miscarriages trying to have our first baby. And um, i just tell you what, in summary, man, our perspective was in the moment, the muck, the dirt, the poor woe is me, the filth of what we were going through. We could not, we did not lift our heads up to see the perspective of what God is doing through this pain. 
It, we, we didn't. Could we have? I think so, but we didn't. So we just trudged through this muck of this pain of, of death and of loss and of anger and bitterness. And, and the only like, Sunday school answer we could kind of give each other was, well, God's just teaching us to, to depend on him. But we didn't really even believe it at the time. And eventually, God enabled us to change our perspective. He gave us his perspective. And I remember when it happened with April, because it happened with her first before it happened with me. And we began to see God in a whole new light, in a whole new way. And as a result, we began to trust God in whole new ways, in whole new areas. And I can just say this, if we didn't go through what we went through, I can guarantee you we would not have moved here to plant Life Journey Church. Because see, our perspective at the time during that was the pain and the anger of what was happening. But now we can look back and see, man, what God was doing in preparing us to depend on him, to trust in him. Man, if you want to go plant a church, you've got to trust in God to be your supply for everything. And so uh, now knowing what we know and the perspective we have now, we rejoice in that pain. Because I know we would not be here in Crozet with you planting Life Journey Church if we had not gone through that pain. So the perspective has changed because we can look back and see what God has done. But don't we all go through things that are difficult to see? It's difficult to see the bigger picture at the time. But afterwards, it might be a little clearer, or sometimes it's not clearer at all. Being a youth minister for years, I can recount the countless conversations with teenagers who could not see the bigger picture, and I don't blame them, for the, the pain that was, divorce was causing their family. Or being rejected at school. I mean, school can be tough on kids at times. How can a parent lift their head above the pain and the misery of losing a child to cancer to see some bigger picture that's at play? Even as adults, we, we see our, our, our aging parents hanging on to life at times. And it gets difficult to see that, to see the pain that they're going through as they're crippling in their older years. What about when you actually stand up for something that's right at work. When your boss tries to convince you to lie on a report, but you don't, you do what's right and you get passed up on the next promotion or perhaps even terminated because you did what was right. Is it easy in those times to have the right perspective of what God is trying to do through those difficult scenarios? I mean, as a wife, is it possible to be a wife, a mother, an employee, a cook, a cleaner, a chauffeur of kids, a soccer coach, a runner, a bill payer, a nose wiper, a diaper changer, a, a desire of healthy food but only time for drive through a lady of integrity, and keep at all times the bigger picture and perspective? Man, that's tough. That's hard. But we all struggle with this one way or another. Keeping the right perspective that this world is not about us. It's about him and his glory. And I think that God knew we were going to struggle with this. And so he gives us a little picture into how Paul 
was able to keep a right perspective. How Paul was able to be effective because he was selective in his perspective. He selected the correct perspective and so therefore he was effective. Now before we zoom into the first couple of verses, I just if you're new here, the way it works is we read a little bit, we talk a little bit. We read a little bit, we talk a little bit, okay? So starting in verse 1 of chapter 3, I know that's a 3 but that means that actually is the chapter 3 but it's verse 1. Paul says, for this reason I Paul, all right, that's the subject, all the English lovers in the room, all right, grammar lovers. I, Paul, all right, you want to know where the verb is? Ask. It's down here in chapter 13, I mean verse 13. So all this in between is Paul explaining his perspective of what God is doing in his life. He says, I, Paul, ask that you do not lose heart over what I am suffering for you. Paul is suffering. And he's saying, don't lose heart over me because I need to let you know the correct perspective. Here's the perspective that I've selected to be effective for the kingdom of God. And so what I want us to do is I just want us to walk through this rather quickly to learn. But how could Paul in all his suffering have this positive, joy-filled outlook on life? How did he do it? Because he had the right perspective. So let's just dive in here. Verse 1. For this reason, you can go ahead and zoom in. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Paul is a prisoner. All right, this isn't uh, figurative. This is literal. He has been a prisoner for five years, two years in Caesarea, and now three years in Rome by the time he writes this. As a matter of fact, if you have one of our handy-dandy chronological through the Old Testament and the New Testament things, which are on the back table, you'll see that Ephesians was written between 60 and 62 AD, which is while Paul is sitting in prison in Rome. Why is he sitting in prison in Rome, you ask? A great question. Because the Jews were so ticked off at him for taking the message of Jesus, the message of faith, the message of the gospel to Gentiles. And so they drummed up all these fake uh, charges against him and put him into prison. But Paul is not upset with him. As a matter of fact, in Romans chapter 9, you know what Paul says? Paul says, I wish that I could be accursed separated from the love of God if only the nation of Israel would be received by God. What a love for the people who have imprisoned him falsely. And Paul says, not only am I a a prisoner for Jesus, and we'll get to that in a second, but I'm here on behalf of you Gentiles. You see, if Paul wasn't called by God to go and preach the message of the gospel to the Gentiles, he wouldn't have been sitting in prison for five years now. And he's going to sit in prison for several more years after this. And then he gets out and then he goes back in. He is in prison because of the calling God has on his life. To preach the gospel to these Gentiles. Now before we go on to verse 2, I do want to make a quick mention of a prisoner for Jesus Christ. You know, the Jews accused him. But he's not a prisoner of the Jews, is he? The Romans, the Gentiles, they arrested him. But he doesn't say I'm a prisoner of the Jews. Gentiles. He's sitting in Rome awaiting an appeal trial before Caesar himself, but he doesn't say, I'm a prisoner of Rome or a prisoner of Caesar. He says, I'm a prisoner 
for Jesus Christ. If you have time later on, go to uh, Acts chapter, I believe it's 8 or 9, where Paul is the story of his uh, conversion, the story of his salvation. And Jesus tells Ananias, the guy who brings Paul's sight back to him, he says, listen, here's my plan for him. My plan is for this man, Paul, who I know he's been killing Christians, because Ananias was like, are you sure you want me to like, bring his sight back? Because he's been killing Christians, and you want me, like, he's blind, maybe he won't find us. So, but you want me to bring his sight back? Jesus says, listen, I've got a plan for this guy. The plan is for him to preach the good news of me before Gentiles, before kings, and before the brethren of Israel. And so Paul is sitting in prison waiting to be before Caesar himself. And he knows that this is a fulfillment of the purpose behind which God has saved him. So Paul, his perspective isn't, woe is me, I'm sitting in this prison. I hate the, 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 the Jews, I hate the Gentiles because they've done this to me. He has the perspective that God has placed him in this position of priority to share the good news of Jesus with Caesar himself. Wow. To be effective, we must be selective in our perspective. If you struggle with this, to view life from God's perspective and get wrapped up, you get wrapped up like I do in the mud and the mucky and the gunk of our life and our world because of the circumstances that surround our life, man, your ears need to be perked up right now. Like, how does he do this? And we're going to run through the rest of this rather quickly, unfortunately. But he says, assuming... Now, this is like a big parenthetical statement. All right. Paul puts more doctrine and truth into a par- parenthetical paragraph than all of us compl- combined, plus the wisest philosophers and Christians of church history combined. Okay? Because this is the authoritative word of God here. He says, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. He said, I-, I know you have heard about what God has done for me. He has given me a stewardship. A, this is the idea. He's given me a um, uh, Um, uh, management of his grace. Right now, April and I live in Danielle's house. I know a lot of you don't know Danielle, but she's in Afghanistan, on her way to Afghanistan for a year, fighting for our country. She's asked us to come into her house to care for her kids, to care for her house, to pay the bills, all that kind of stuff. And so we are managers. We are stewards of her house, her household. Paul is a steward of God's grace. By God's grace, God has given Paul stewardship, management of his grace. And in a real sense, we are all managers of God's grace. We are managers in the fact that we are to live it, to share it, to to be transformed by it, on and on. Even the very breath in our lungs is not our own. It was given to us by God. We are managers of his grace. And he goes on to say, assuming you've heard of the stewardship, assuming you've heard how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I've briefly written. Okay, briefly written. That was chapter 1 and chapter 2. We're not going to review that because we just did. All right, I've briefly written about this revelation. You see, Paul's stewardship of the gospel of grace was unique. Jesus Christ had directly revealed this gospel and its intricacies to Paul. And then Paul wrote it down. That's what we have chapter 1 and chapter 2. The details of this mystery. This was revealed by God to Paul for Paul to write it down so that all of us who read it 
would understand what God has done. And as a matter of fact, Paul even says that. Verse 4, when you read this, you, whoever you are, you Ephesians, you in Laodicea, you here at Life Journey Church, when you read this, verse 4, you can perceive my insight to the mystery of Christ. When you read this, Paul's hope is that the Ephesian readers and us today would understand this great mystery that's in Christ. This mystery that was revealed directly to him for him to share with us for the grace of God to be continued to all men. Paul is about to make a huge shift at chapter 4 that we talked about, going from the positional to the practical. He's about to make a huge shift, and before he does it, he wants to make sure we are crystal clear on what is happening in this position that we have. A commentator says this, he knows, Paul knows that spiritual insight must always precede practical application. Because what is not properly understood cannot be practically applied. You see, in chapters 4 through the end of the book, Paul is going to talk about walking in unity, about walking in peace, about walking in selflessness, about walking in purity, about walking in discipline, about walking in harmony. He's going to talk about walking in victory. And he knows that those things are impossible if we don't first understand the glory of the gospel and what God has already done for us. You see, Paul didn't get his passion for lost souls. He didn't get his passion for the gospel by having emotional highs. I'm sure Paul had a lot of emotional highs. But man, this guy had a lot of emotional lows as well. And a matter of fact, in Philippians chapter 4, he says, whether things are good or whether things are terrible, it doesn't matter to me because I've learned to be content in all things. For I can do all these things, be real high, be real low, through Christ who gives me the strength to go through them. And so Paul doesn't get his passion for the gospel through emotionalism. He gets his passion for the gospel because of his insight, his understanding of the truth of this mystery. What's the mystery? What's this mystery that that he keeps talking about? He says it wasn't made known to the sons of men in other generations. In the Old Testament, they didn't know about this mystery. It has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit of God. This isn't something that was known about in the Old Testament. In fact, what we, when we in the New Testament read back into the Old Testament and, and we can see, wow, oh yeah, that makes sense. That makes such clear sense in the Old Testament. It's only because we understand the New Testament. For example... When God uh, told Abraham, he said, I'm going to make you a great nation, and through you, you are going to bless the entire world. All right? Genesis, early part, right? The Old Testament saints, they didn't understand how that was going to work exactly because they didn't understand the grace of God going out to the Gentiles. Now, Gentiles, for those who might not have grown up in church, that's just someone who's not a Jew. Okay, so that's me. I'm not a Jew. I don't come from Jewish background as far as I know. Maybe you do. If you do, great. But the Jew and the Gentile, they hated each other. And so this mystery is that the gospel now goes to the Gentile, that Gentiles can be a part of this covenant family that God has put together and has redeemed by the blood of Jesus. This is a mystery. It wasn't made known to the prophets of the Old Testament. Verse 6 goes on to say, this is the mystery. Here's the big mystery that was so confusing. And a mystery is something that's been solved. Here's the solution. That the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise of the of Jesus Christ promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel this is the mystery that gentiles are now a part of this covenant 
family. Now, this is hard for us to... I think it's hard. It's hard for me to get into perspective. Because we've lived in 2,000 years of church history where Gentiles and Jews are, are, are both have access to the gospel. But let me try to paint, and if this gets a little icky, I apologize ahead of time. But let me try to paint what this might feel like for us today. I have a 15-month-old baby, uh, toddler. Um, it'd be kind of like this. I need a babysitter for Gwen. That's my daughter. And uh, I get a, a, a babysitter. I, I, I've never met this person before. I go up to the door. I ring the bell. I I got to go to work. So I, I go, give Gwen to this person. I've never met this person before. And they have, they're covered with one of the most contagious, infectious skin diseases known to man. And their pus-filled boils are seeping and weeping all over their body. And I say, here, here's Gwen, see you later, after work, have a good day. And I walk off. Now, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense for me to do that. These two different people groups, and April said, you better never do that. These two people groups, they consider themselves as the precious babe and the other as the skin-infected, contagious, pus-filled, sore person. So the Jews thought the Gentiles were filthy, nasty. The Gentiles thought the Jews were filthy, nasty. They hated each other. And so here's this mystery. This mystery is that Jew and Gentile are co-heirs. They're members of the same body. They are partakers of the promise of Jesus. And that's radical, not for us necessarily, because we've been 2,000 years of this church history, but that's radical to them. This is the mystery they didn't have in the Old Testament. And this is why Paul is sitting in prison. And he says, of this gospel, verse 7, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me. I was made a minister. Now, we look at that word minister, and we think of like someone who stands up and preaches, like a minister, you wear a nice collar, a minister, right? This just simply means servant. He says, this is why God was, this is why Paul's perspective is, is, is so pure. It's because he realized that God is in the driver's seat. He says, I was made a servant. I didn't choose to be made a servant. God made me a servant. And God is in the driver's seat. Paul's a passenger in this thing of the story about God. And he realizes this. And he goes on to say, and I wish I could elaborate a little bit further in that verse, but verse 8 says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. This to me, this is emphatic. He's like, I know me. I, I know who I am. I know the wretched state of my heart. To me, the least of all saints, this was given. And so Paul is realizing that this isn't because of my, my academia. This isn't because of my righteous living. This is only by the grace of God that he is on mission with God, serving the gospel to the Gentiles. And he says, the purpose of this is so that I could preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches. It was given to me to preach. And again, we hear the word preach. Like, hey, that's what you're doing up there, Walt. All this word means is to announce the good news. It was given to me, this responsibility, this gospel was given to me to share it. To announce it to the Gentiles, what God has done for them. And to bring to light to, for everyone, to enlighten everyone what this plan is. That Jew and Gentile together in one new man in Christ can take place. <sighs> And here's where we get one of those crazy verses that you're like, 
how come I never knew that before? How come I never read this in this light before? And this is verse 10. The whole point of this, the whole point of this thing called the church, of bringing the Jew and the Gentile as to one new man in Christ, is so that verse 10, through the church, this, this body, this new structure that's being built up, through this church, what God is doing, bringing Jew and Gentile, all men into one new man, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. So what Paul is saying is the whole point of this thing, this mystery being revealed, the Jews and the Gentiles coming together, is so that the manifold wisdom, the immeasurable wisdom of God might be on display for these rulers and authorities in heaven to see. Who is he talking about? Is he talking about God the Son and God the Holy Spirit? No. They are God. They equally know this mystery. It wasn't a mystery to them. Well, what other body, what other thing do you have in heaven that worships God all the time? Angels. So here's what Paul is saying. Angels spend their time 24-7 worshiping God in heaven. And this thing of the church, of bringing the Jew and the Gentile, this craziness that just doesn't make any sense to us 2,000 years later, but it makes a whole lot of radical sense to them in, this, in the first century. He brings this together to show for the angels to look on with amazement of like, God, you are good. You are smart. You are wise. You are gracious. And so I see Paul saying that the whole point of the church, the major point of the church, certainly it's to see souls saved. That's important, right? But the bigger picture, the bigger point is for the angels to have even more reason to worship God. You see the center of this? It isn't even us. The church, the purpose of the church isn't for us to get volunteers plugged in to shake, wave hands in the parking lot. Now, we need that, and we want you to volunteer. But the purpose of the church is for somebody to come up here and strum a guitar and say, man, that guy's good. The purpose of the church isn't for somebody to stand up here and talk about the truths of Scripture. The biggest fundamental purpose of the church is for the angels in heaven to be like, God, you are good. You are amazing. Your wisdom confounds. It, it just blows our minds for angels to to have even more stuff to worship God about. That's powerful. Because I thought the church was about me. I thought it was so I could get up here and talk. I thought it was so I could wax eloquently about the truths of Scripture. No. The purpose of the church is not only for me or only for you. The purpose of this bringing the mist, this mystery being revealed and the Jew and the Gentile coming together as this one new body is for God to be worshipped and to be glorified. And verse 11 says, this is according to the eternal plan. The, the eternal purpose, this has always been the plan. We're just now picking up on it. We're just now being revealed this mystery. It's just now coming to realization in our hearts and lives. It's been the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus has made it a reality. This has always been the plan. For the bot, these people who hate each other to become one, this thing called the church, for these angels to worship God more. For God to be praised and glorified. That's been the plan forever. It's just being re realized now in Jesus. Does that make you feel a little bit smaller than you did when you walked in here? It does make me feel, and it should. Because this church, life journey, is not about spreading our fame. It's about spreading the fame of God. And then he says to wrap up, he says, In whom we have boldness and access. 
with confidence. We can boldly approach the throne of grace. We have access with confidence to God because of our faith in him. There's where the paragraph, the parenthetical paragraph ends. And he picks back up from verse 1. So because of this perspective, because this is not about me, because God is in the driver's seat and I'm but a passenger, because this bringing this mystery to realization in Jesus Christ is for God to get more glory, for God to be worshipped greater, because it's not about me, hey, look, I ask, don't lose heart in my sufferings because it's not about me. I'm here because of God's eternal plan to bring the gospel to Caesar himself. Philippians tells us that the entire house that Paul was imprisoned at, all the Roman guard, became believers in Jesus. Paul said, don't look at my sufferings. As a matter of fact, Psalms even says that the righteous suffer. It's the way it's supposed to be. The righteous suffer, but God delivers through the suffering. If you want to read more about Paul's suffering, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We don't have time for this. But it talks about five times I received by the Jews lashes. 40 lashes minus 1. 39, right? Um, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. I was shipwrecked. I was robbed. I was in danger from the Gentiles. Danger from the Jews. On and on and on. He lists out all these afflictions that he was suffering through. And he says in that same letter to the Corinthians, he says, These are light momentary afflictions. Okay, if I'm beaten by someone and shipwrecked three times and, and, and I'm ostracized by my own Jewish family, if I was Jew, all these things, if I was stoned to death, left for dead numerous times, bitten by snakes, all the things that he w- went through, I don't think I would consider those light momentary afflictions. But Paul was effective because he was selective in his perspective. He didn't have the f- perspective of poor pitiful me. He had the perspective that all of this is for the praise and the glory of God, not for me. And so he was but a passenger in this train. God was the chief conductor. So how can you lift your head up out of the muck and the clay and the miry and the dirt and the filth that you find yourself going through? How can you on a Sunday morning when kids are going crazy and tissues are in toilets and like, how can I get to church on time? Those moments, don't we have those? How can we through those, and those are just silly, but they're certainly more serious ones. How, how can we have a right perspective? How can we be effective? We've got to be selective in our perspective. As long as we think as a church that this whole thing is about us and about how we can be happy and comfortable and, 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 and joy, you know, have happiness, then, man, we're not going to have joy. We're going to be miserable. But as soon as we begin to realize that, man, this is all about him and his glory and his praise and his worship, that even us being here covered by the blood of Christ is so angels can worship God more fervently. Like when we realize that, that changes our perspective. And we see, man, who am I to complain about my heat pump going out? Paul was shipwrecked. Floating in the Mediterranean Sea for three days. And he was joyous as a result. He was effective because he was selective of his perspective. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. And I just ask that we internalize this truth this morning.
that we become selective. Dream with me for a second with your eyes closed and we're wrapping this thing up. And I apologize for being a little bit longer than normal, but man, this is just good truth. Just think about it. Let's just dream as a church. What if, what would happen if we all as a church started getting this? What if we started to live in the reality that the purpose of our church isn't to spread our fame. It isn't simply to have fun. It isn't simply to have something to do. It isn't simply something to plug people into volunteering. It isn't something to just have a nice lesson for kids. And that the ultimate purpose of our church isn't even to see lives transformed. Though that's a big part of it. But what if we got to, to understand that the ultimate purpose of our church, of the church... Is to bring glory and honor and praise to the name of God. What if we got it that the ultimate purpose of your life as a member of Christ's body is to glorify God in everything? Man, your purpose is not your comfort. Your purpose is God's glory. Oh, if we could just get this perspective, this perspective from God's angle, man, it would change our lives and we could become so effective for the kingdom of God. To be effective, we must be selective in our perspective. Father God, I just pray over this, your church, God. We are so grateful, so thankful, God, for what you're doing here in Life Journey. God, I thank you for these new faces, these new uh, people, God, who are here tonight, uh, this morning. And I just pray, God, that you would work mightily in this place. That, God, at our church, we would have the right perspective. That, God, when things good happen, when things bad happen, when we get kicked out of buildings because we can't rent them anymore because we lift high the name of Jesus, whatever the scenario is, that, God, we would be effective for you because we have selected the correct perspective. It's all for you, for your glory. So, God, may we join in with Paul and say, don't worry. Don't be concerned about my, our suffering because it's not about us. It's about you. And, God, there is a harvest of souls here in Crozet, God, that you want to save by your supernatural gospel. And God, if we could get over ourselves and get beyond ourselves and see that this breath in our lungs is for you, this blood in our veins is for you, the the neurons firing in our brain is for you to bring glory to your name. God, we thank you. We love you. We worship you. In Jesus' name.